So we are uh, continuing a series called A House for His Presence. And uh, if you don't know, this is our, our mission. This is our pursuit as a community, as a people. Uh, we're saying, God, our ultimate longing is your ultimate longing. <laughs> that God's ultimate longing is to simply dwell among his people, that we see this, this singular theme throughout Scripture in Eden, in the temple, in the tabernacle, through God with us. We see this in the book of Revelation, that God's ultimate longing is to simply dwell with his people. How significant is that guy? It's like you, we look at ourselves and we're like, well, what do I have? <laughs> that is so special that God, creator universe, longs to just be with us. So I love Hebrews 10. It says this. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place. The author is giving a picture of the tabernacle or the temple. There was three layers, the outer courts, the inner courts, and there's the holy place, the holy of holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence tangibly dwelled. So he's saying that we can now boldly enter that place. But this was a place that only a high priest who was born of a specific family in a specific tribe. And they could only enter into this place one time a year. And he's saying this place, say place, there is a place that has been hidden. There's a place that, that, that is so holy that we can't touch and enter in. And this place is where God is. This is God's place. And it says, because of what Jesus has done, he actually tore the veil. Do you guys remember that? When he died, the veil in the temple was literally torn. Historically, they actually know this. This happened. And now we can enter into that place. Verse 20, by his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain. That is his flesh into the most holy place. This is profound. This is very, very profound. This is why we worship the lamb. Guys, we have to, we have to understand this. We, if we want to be presence people, if we want to be a people after God's own heart, we have to be connected to the cross. The moment we get disconnected, we start making up our own things, start making up our own theology, <laughs> our own ideas of God that you cannot separate God from the cross. This is why, I, I, like, I, it's, it's just so profound to me. And I've said this probably every Sunday because it's still blowing my mind that in eternity, they're worshiping the lamb. It's like what Jesus did here on earth was like had an eternal ripple effect. That like even all of the angelic beings for eternity, they're like, we still can't get over how insane this is. That the creator would become created and would die so that the created could know the creator. Like, who would think of this? Jesus did. And so it says that by his sacrifice, his flesh was the divide. His flesh was opened up. The veil was opened up, which was his flesh, so that we can enter in the most holy place, so that we can enter in his presence. Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest, okay, right? The high priests were the only ones that can enter the presence of God one time a year. 
Jesus is such a great high priest. He's even greater than the high priest who mediates God's presence to man. He rules over God's house. This is important. Say God's house. God's house is God's house. Right? Jesus says that my house will be a house of prayer. That upon this rock, I will build my church. Guys, it's his church, which means it's his rules, which means it's his desires, which means everything that we want to do and and all of the dreams and like, man, the church plants and everything that we want to expand and all of this doesn't matter if it's not what he wants because this is his house. Verse 22. And so let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. This is crazy. The place that was so holy that if you had any sinful thought, you would just die in. He's saying, hey, you can actually run into this place now. You can run into God's living room. He doesn't say, hey, proceed with caution. Oh. I think a lot of times in the church we proceed with caution. Obviously, there's wisdom and discernment. Right? You may have heard the term, yeah, like, we're charismatic, but with a seatbelt. I've heard that. We're spirit-filled, but, you know, we got a seatbelt on. Take it off. Let us go right in. Let us press right in. That's what we did this morning. This is what you guys did. Hopefully. That you didn't hold back. That you weren't, you weren't afraid to enter. You weren't, you weren't focused on you because it's not your house. You're focused on him. And because it's his house, he says this. Here's my rule. Come right in. With sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For your guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. He's saying, even your minds have been redeemed. Like, I I think about this. Because we we, we know scripture. We read the Old Testament. We see, right, Uzzah, who went to hold the Ark of the Covenant when it fell, and he literally dropped dead in the moment. David's like, what the heck just happened? Or he's like, well, he wasn't a Levite. That wasn't the rule. He's like, okay, well, you're God. And we, we see this happen, but now as New Covenant believers, you come to church, and I guarantee you, a lot of people today probably sinned. <laughs> you don't have to be prophetic to know that. Right? If you lusted today, sorry, you sinned. Like, even your mind, he, Jesus actually raises the standards of the law. He's like, even, even if your mind looks at that, you've actually committed adultery. <laughs> That's how holy my standard is. But this is interesting. If you sin today, then you came in worship, how were you able to encounter his presence? Right? Like, you, you know, like, man, I, was, I really was, wasn't, you know, the best Christian this week. But you came into the place of worship fully surrendered, and you met him. And it didn't have anything to do with how holy you were. It was because of him. Why? The rules have changed. He says, now you don't come based on you. You come because of the curtain that was open. 
And because of what Jesus has done, he's actually redeemed you. Say redeem. He's actually bought you with a price. Okay, think about this. If you were to buy something broken and you were to pay a really high price for it, what would you do? You would fix it. <laughs> so he bought you with a price. He put a new heart. He put his spirit in you. He says, now you're a temple. You're not, you're, not, you're not the outer courts. You're the whole thing. You're the place where sacrifice is happening. You're the place that worship is happening. You're the place where incense, which symbolizes prayer, is happening. You're the place where you can actually encounter me, and people can come to you and encounter me because you're a temple. So we can go in. Why? Because our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ blood to make us clean the high priest they would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat forgiving the nation's sins for that year and our bodies have been washed pure this is so good guys this is just scripture and so because of what jesus accomplished access to his presence has been restored how many of you guys read genesis 1 and you're like, oh, man, I want that. I just want to walk in the cool of the day naked, <laughs> right? No shame. It's me every time I come home from church. Just kidding. That wasn't appropriate. Um, <laughs> but we read Genesis and we're like, oh, my gosh, this is so, this is it. Like, you read that and it's like, it's kind of weird and there's like a flaming sword floating. And all this stuff happening. But there's something in your heart that's like, I long for Eden. <laughs> like, I, I long for that place where sin isn't even affecting my mind anymore. Longing for that place where, where God is just walking with us. It's like full communion with Jesus. And this is the beautiful thing. I heard someone say that Jesus didn't just bring you back to the garden, he put the garden inside of you. And so when we talk about a house for his presence, we're not talking about, hey, let's have a house that's just like really passionate and speaks in tongues just because that seems like the thing to do. But it's saying that we're a house that is around the tree of life, that is Jesus, and we're here to just simply dwell with the person. And I've, I've just, honestly, I've just been so convicted recently of how complicated we've made this thing. Like Jesus actually made it very simple. The new covenant <laughs> made it very simple. The old covenant, that was complicated, right? It's like you got to kill a bunch of lambs. Okay, you can't do this thing. Can't eat shellfish. Oh, I work on, I sinned, right? It's so simple, and I read this verse last week that in the book of Revelation, when Jesus comes to restore the earth, to make all things new, it says that there's no need for light or, or sun or moon anymore. Like there's not even a need. It's not necessary because the lamb is the light. And, and I think that's so profound. And, and I, I want us as a church, when we say a house for his presence, this is a house for Jesus. This is a place that says, Jesus... This is your footstool. 
Prop your feet up if you want. Jesus, this is your house. Do what you want to do. Jesus, this is your church. You build it and we're going to follow. When we say, I will follow you, we're saying you have to lead. When you say, I will follow you, I've decided to follow Jesus. It's a really cool line, but he actually has to lead. If he's not leading, you're not following, guys. It's simple, <laughs> right? Hopefully. But when I say it's simple, what I'm saying is we've, we've, we've almost like, it's like Jesus wasn't attractive enough. So we had to put makeup on Jesus so hopefully that people would want to follow him. It's like Jesus wasn't glorious enough. Let's, let's add all these things, which is not bad. I'm like, I, I love good production. I hope we get better equipment. You know, LED screens would be really dope. But at the end of the day, it's like it's a heart thing, right? Where it's like, if we need those things to get people to come here, then that's what's keeping them here, not him. And like, I'm, guys, I'm so stirred. Like next week, we have a really huge announcement which I'm really excited to share. A lot of things are happening. But we're going in this direction where we're like, man, Jesus, if you're not here, we don't want it. If you're not doing this, then we don't want it. And we might lose people. Like the, the change we're about to make, it's gonna be really inconvenient. It's gonna cost us a lot of money. It's gonna require a lot more volunteers. And frankly, I don't wanna do it. But at the end of the day, if... if if it's what Jesus wants, if it's, if, it, if it's what prioritizes him, then that's all that matters. And some of you may leave. Like, man, I don't want to, like, I didn't get a chair this Sunday. Let me go over there. They have, like, pleather chairs. And their coffee's free. No, I'm just kidding. But truly, guys, what brought you here is what's going to keep you here. If what brought you here was really cool, trendy worship, that's not enough. If what brought you here was, man, look how cool their Instagram is, that's not enough. Right? Look how attractive their pastor is. It's just not enough, guys. <laughs> I think you guys laughed too hard about that one. That's fine. So I want to read Psalm 132. Two, two scriptures that I want to just like camp on. You guys okay? Psalm 132, this is so profound. They don't know who wrote this psalm. People think it was Solomon. But in this psalm, it reveals a vow that David made. And David, yes, he had his flaw but David is, is, is the biblical epitome of leadership. The way David led, I don't know if you guys knew this. When David became king, he was 30 years old. He was very young. And he literally shifted. Like, the, the period that he was king was known as the golden era of Israel because of his leadership. Right? This was a guy, we, when we, I think when we think of David, we think of like a 12-year-old kid, on like a liar singing to sheep. But this guy was a general. <laughs> he was a, a soldier. He killed a lot of people. 
Like, imagine if I'm preaching right now, I'm like, guys, I killed, like, hundreds of people in my past. We're like, oh, I don't know if I'm coming there. Like, this guy was crazy. He did a lot of crazy things for the Lord. He was an inventor. He actually invented instruments. He brought unity to the entire nation when there was disunity. But what's so significant is God says this. This this isn't Paul. Paul doesn't say this. This isn't John saying this about David. God says this about David. He says, you are a man after my own heart. So think about that. For God to look at you and say, hey, you moved me. I had this moment, we had, we had prayer room Saturday, which you guys need to come to. With this moment, they're leading, and I, I had this line come to my mind. And I was like, God, I don't want to just please you. I want to move you. It's like pleasing you is just obedience. That's the minimum. Faith, that's, that's the minimum. I, I, yes, I, I want to please you and be obedient, but I, I ultimately, I want to move you. I, I want my heart and my affection, and my life, and my family, and my ministry to move your heart. And this doesn't mean that God is like emotionally swayed. The same way that my two-year-old son can look at me and say, Papa, I love you. I'm like, a mess, right? It's like, whatever you want, I'll get you ice cream right now. <laughs> so my heart was moved. It was like, it's not like he like bought me a house, but he moved my heart. And so when we see the greatest commandment, this is why David was called a man after God's own heart, is because he knew the greatest commandment before knowing the greatest commandment. He fulfilled what Jesus says, this is the first and greatest thing, is to love me with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we hear that. (laughs) We hear that, and we don't do it because we don't believe it. What are you saying? We hear that. We're like, yeah, I love God by loving the poor. Well, yeah. The same way I can love my wife by doing dishes. Well, I love God by praying. Well, yeah, I love my wife by like giving her cards. But to love God with your heart requires what? Your heart. Right? And so God is longing for a people that says, God, your heart is my first priority. God, to love you is actually my utmost desire. That my desire is your desire. We say that here at Breakthrough, right? Our desire is his desire. We want to build what he wants to build. We want to go where he wants to go. We want to say what he wants to say. All right, Psalm 132. 18 minutes, all right. Psalm 132. So good. He said this, speaking about David. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. And he said this, I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob.
David is saying, God, my ultimate desire is your ultimate desire. <laughs> What's God's ultimate desire to dwell among his people? Right? And David is saying, I want to build you a place. Say place. I want to build you a place where you are dwelling. Okay? Stick with me. Passive upper room, he says this line. The God who dwells everywhere longs to dwell somewhere in a place. Did you know this? In the garden, God was dwelling in a place. The garden wasn't the whole earth. It was one little area. God was dwelling in a place. So he made this vow. And, and obviously David's a poet, right? So he's going to be poetic and, you know, kind of dramatic. I'm not going to sleep. You know those people? Just kidding. I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to close my eyes. But it, it's, it's the heart cry of his vow that I believe needs to mark the church. That our heart cry and vow would say, God, I want to build you a place where you dwell. What is the place? Wherever we're at. Because it's not about a building. The church isn't a building, it's us. And I will say this, that you are a part of the church, but when we come together, we become the church. So God wants to dwell amongst his people. Yes, you can encounter him in your bedroom. You need the secret place. You need to have intimacy with Jesus. But there's something significant that God says, I actually want to dwell among my bride. I want to meet together with my bride. The church was his idea, guys. It wasn't ours. It wasn't mine. It wasn't Paul's, it was Jesus's. I will build my church. And I love this quote. Oh, gosh. Rejoiner, he says this, the reason the church of Acts emerged as a force that could so change the world, right? The book of Acts, you see these nobodies, fishermen, tax collectors, literally preaching. 3,000 people were getting saved. Revival was happening. These were literally like if like the garbage man down the road started a revival in Lynchburg. You're like, what? You don't, like you would think it would be the pastors, right? The mega church leaders it was the garbage man. So God took these normal nobodies and as Acts says, they flipped the world upside down. Okay, Rick Joyner, he says this quote, why the church emerged in the book of Acts as a force that could be, that could so change the world was because the Lord was among them. Say the Lord was among them. Why they could change the world wasn't because they found a growth strategy. Was but, but it was because the, the Lord was simply among them. They had encounters with him day by day, and he was their message, and he did great works among them. Charles Finney, if you know him, he was a revivalist who ushered in the Second Great Awakening. He says this quote. He says, if the presence of God is in the church, the church will draw the world in. If the presence of God is not in the church, the world will draw the church out. Look around. 2022, 2021, 2020, I'll keep going, 2019, 2018, 2017. That if God is not among us, <laughs> the world will draw us out. But if God is among us, 
the world will come in. And so when we make the first and greatest commandment, the first and greatest commandment, the Great Commission will be an overflow. But if you do the Great Commission without the Great Commandment, you're inviting people to know a philosophy, not a person. Hey, come, follow this philosophy. This is why people are like, well, it's not enough. Let me add some new age stuff in there. Oh, that's not enough. Let me play with tarot cards and predict my future. Because they're longing for something real, guys. And I get it. It's like you live your whole life just being told what to do and what not to do, but there's no person, there's no substance, there's, there's nothing real on the other side, then it's just like you're just torturing yourself for nothing. But the good news is we actually believe there is a person. We actually believe that when we do gather, God is amongst us. We actually do believe that where two or more are gathered, he is there. And so my longing is saying, God, I want to build you a house, not a building, but a people who gather around you. I want to build a culture in Lynchburg that says, this is the meeting place where heaven touches earth because Jesus is here. We can be in a tent for all I care. We can be in a field. It doesn't matter. But it's us that are now the temples of the Holy Spirit. He, he says, I, I don't need a, a building. I don't dwell in a building made by human hands. But it's us. So David makes this vow, and I believe, guys, this is the vow that we need to respond to in this hour that says, God, I want to give you a place. God, let my family be a place. Let my friend group, let my business, let our church gatherings be a place where you get to show up and dwell. Okay, I'm going to end here. First Chronicles 13. First Chronicles 13, 2 to 3. So give you guys some context before we read this. Saul was appointed king, right? The people of Israel said, God, all the nations, they have a ruler. They're ruled by a man. We want to be ruled by a person, which is essentially them saying, God, I don't want, to, I don't want you to lead us. We want, we want to look like the world. <laughs> and so God's like, okay, I'll give you what you want. Here's King Saul. Good luck. What's crazy in Saul's story, you keep seeing this contrast of David and Saul, and David's the actual true king that was anointed by God, that God really wanted, but he's still a shepherd boy, and Saul is just like a tyrant, just doing whatever he wants. His nation becomes so divided. This is crazy that the prophet Samuel keeps trying to speak to Saul to give prophetic direction, and Saul just keeps ignoring him, and so soon enough, God's like, well, you keep ignoring me. I'm not going to speak to you anymore. So spirit r- removes off of Saul. And Saul's like, wait, but there's no more power anymore. Do you know what Saul does? He goes to a witch. Literally, it's called the Witch of Endor. Sounds like Star Wars, but it's the Witch of Endor. And he literally goes to her and is like, hey, I need help defeating this army. <laughs> Guys, come on. 
And so because of this, he actually became demonized. And so this, this was the ruler of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant was stored away for 70 years, which means there was no more worship for 70 years. There was no more worship. God's presence wasn't accessible. No one heard the word of the Lord because it kept getting shut out by Saul. This was the nation of Israel at this time. And David rises up. This is actually really funny. It's not funny, but it's crazy. People keep trying to kill Saul. And David's like, don't kill him. <laughs> like, he, he really wanted Saul to repent. And eventually, Saul got assassinated, and David killed the person that assassinated Saul. He's like, I told you not to do that. Right? <laughs> it's like, that's not the best, but I see your heart. But David ends up getting inaugurated as king, and, and this is what happens. This is David's inaugural speech, right? When the president's inaugurated, he gives a big speech to the nation. This is David's inaugural speech. This is him saying, this is what we're going after as a nation. He's not speaking to like 12 hillbillies, right? It's like thousands of people. All right, you guys know the context. First Chronicles 13, two to three. Then he addressed the entire assembly of Israel and follows, if you approve, and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send messages to all of the Israelites throughout the land, including the priests and Levites in their towns and pasturelands. Let us invite them to come in and join us because it is time to bring back the ark of our God for we neglected it during the reign of Saul. He's saying for 70 years, we've neglected the Lord's presence. But now that I'm king, we're bringing it back. That's powerful. That he's saying it's time to prioritize God again. And I feel just this is just like a, a wake-up call to the church. This is a wake-up call to us. We've neglected the ark. We've, we've neglected the presence of God for too long. People are getting too jaded and, and mixing stuff outside the church with the church. And, and people are going all the way over here and deconstructing over here. And, and it's just getting way too messy, guys. It's like, it, I, I, we look at it, it's like, is that even like, is that even a Christian anymore? And I, and I believe that this statement by David is so crucial because it's the day that we're living in. I say this a lot, guys. It's like, yeah, we're charismatic just because it's what we do, but it's not what we're doing. It's Jesus. It's like, I don't care if you speak in tongues or not. If you do, that's great. But it's just Jesus. And when you meet him, yeah, he'll give you really cool gifts. And he'll empower you and he'll make you fall out if you want or whatever. But it's just him. And we've neglected him for too long. Like, I want to ask you, how personal is Jesus actually in your life? Like, like, how personal is the person of Jesus in your life? Is he real? Or is he just a philosophy? Is he personal? Or is he just an afterthought? Is he close? Or is he just an accessory? Because we've neglected him for far too long. And it's time to bring the ark back. The ark was the point where heaven met earth. David referred to it as the footstool of God, that wherever the ark was, 
day, uh, God promised to manifest his glory and presence, that the ark was the most important thing that Israel had. It gave them a national identity, that his presence was so central to their lives. You guys know what David did? This is profound, and we're going to dive into this on another Sunday. You guys know about David's tabernacle? The craziest thing to ever touch this earth. David fulfilled his vow and his, his son Solomon ended up actually building a physical building. But David fulfilled his vow, and you can actually read the rest of Psalm 132. Right? It says, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, arise, Lord, come to your resting place. You and the ark of your might, may your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. But David, he, he built a tabernacle. Do you remember that? Moses' tabernacle. He built another tabernacle. And in this tabernacle, there's no separation. He's like, I'm going to build a tabernacle for the Lord. We're just going to put the ark in the middle, and we're just going to worship him. That's all he did. There was like, there's no layers. There's no animal sacrifices. It's actually really profound. Give me spoilers for the next message. When David built the tabernacle, he walked seven times, slaughtered a lamb, and there was no more animal sacrifices for 33 years because their worship was their sacrifice. So in this tabernacle for 33 years, listen to this. He hired 4,288 full-time singers, musicians, and priests to worship and minister to the Lord continually for 24 hours for 33 years straight. You read this. It's right here. He's like, we're going to bring the ark back. And we're taking this seriously. We're not playing games. As long as I'm king, he's going to be centered. He's going to be central. And theologians have studied this. 4,000 people to be full-time employees. Hour-long shifts, day and night. Every single hour, there was a shift for 33 years. Theologians study this. To fund that kind of ministry would cost a billion dollars. It would have cost a billion dollars to pay that many people for 33 years. But David says, I don't even care how much it costs. Guys, when God is centered, it's going to cost us. It's going to take resources. It's going to be inconvenient. Oh, man, I got my 2 a.m. worship set in front of the ark. All right, got to get up. Got to minister to the Lord today. It's going to get inconvenient. Why does it get inconvenient? Because he wasn't there in the first place. He wasn't central in the first place. So things have to start moving around. I say this a lot. That worship, guys. The church. Oh, man. Guys, I'm not dogging on the church. We are a church. But we've made worship like an appetizer. Not even a good one. You know, it's like, here's some moth sticks, some like really bad mozzarella sticks. And then let's bring the word. Here's your filet mignon, right? And the word is so important, right? The fivefold ministry to edify the church is so important. But there's no preaching in heaven. It's that I know of. It's just Jesus and lovers. And we've made worship this really stale appetizer. We're like, here you go, God. The one part that's actually for him at church. 
God doesn't need our sermons. He already knows all this. But the one part that's actually for him, we're like, let's give a really, really lame offering. Thanks for the cross, God. Now let's teach people a bunch of stuff. Guys, we've got it so wrong. We got it so wrong. Worship is the main course. Worship is the main course. Why? Because it's the one thing that actually moves his heart. It's the one thing that actually fulfills his greatest longing. Because when we worship, listen, when we worship, heaven touches earth. When we worship, God and man start to dwell. Because he is enthroned upon what? Our praises. So when we worship, God's longing is fulfilled because we're not singing to a ceiling, we're singing to a person. And when we're singing to a person and he's receiving and he's loving back, what is that? That's called a relationship. Worship bridges our hearts to have a relationship. Why for all eternity are they worshiping? (laughs) Because it's the the main response when Jesus shows up. It's actually the only response. Imagine Jesus shows up in a room like glory cloud level, right? And you're like, now it's time for us to go study the Old Testament prophets for the next two hours. And God is like trying to manifest in the room. Where it's like, no, if he's there, everything has to stop. And he has to get the attention, not us. All right. So I'm just going to end. Oh, man, it's 12 o'clock. Just go to HQ and keep going. <sighs> but their braces aren't here yet. Um, all right, Holy Spirit. Bill Johnson, he says this quote, that there is nothing in heaven that is separate from his presence. That heaven without his presence isn't heaven. It's actually hell. <laughs> That one's sick. What is hell? The absence of his presence. So it's his presence that actually makes heaven heaven. Without Jesus, it's not heaven. Without Jesus, it actually can't be eternal because he is the eternal one that gives eternity. Without him, there's no eternity. And so if we want to bring heaven and earth, who wants to do that? We want to bring heaven and earth. Kingdom come. That your rule and reign would come. Your will, your desires, your longings, your your heart's desires would come. As it is where you are on earth. That prayer is saying, God, I want you to be here in a place. The God who is everywhere would dwell in a place. You're a temple. You're the place. So if you want heaven on earth, guys, then nothing we should do should be separate from the presence of God. Guys, our ministry should not be separate from the presence of God. If not, who are we ministering to? That our businesses, our life decisions... God's not on it. Don't go there. Your relationship, somebody needs to hear this. God's not on it. Don't touch it. Don't even, don't even think about it. Don't even go close. Our worship, that if his presence isn't 
there, then we're not going to be there. All right, let's stand. We're going to close.